Good morning. Glad you guys are here. Last week, second service broke uh, first service as far as size is concerned, maybe for the first time in years, because we had that awfully bittersweet time change. And then right on the back of that, we got spring break, right? So just all kinds of crazy around church the last few weeks. But you guys look good. You look fresh. You look like you're ready to go. Amen? Amen. Okay. A couple of things here as we get ready for Easter. One is that we've got these yard signs available today. So we're encouraging everybody to take one of these. Uh, you can even take the ones after service that I've got sitting right here. But we got a ton more of these, some of them put together and some in boxes in each of the foyers. So as you go out through any of these doors, you should encounter some of these. And we're encouraging every family to take one and put it out in your yard. You just never know uh, whether or not somebody may drive past who has been thinking about looking for a church to go to on Easter. And they just don't know and they don't know where to go. And maybe... Lord forbid that they don't know that this is a church that you go to that you love. So this does a couple things. It tells them uh, where there's a church. They tell, it tells them that you go to church. And so this is a little step of public faith, right? Putting it out there in your yard. And um, who knows? Maybe God will use this to bring somebody our way. Uh, a couple other things that we can do as we get ourselves ready for Easter and get our minds ready. We know that that day we'll probably have some extra guests amongst us. And so we're asking all of our members to think in terms of making things a little easier for our guests that day. And on the front of your bulletin are a few ideas that the staff has put together. But basically it's this, park in the back, sit in the front. Everybody say this after me. You ready? This is really easy. You ready? Park in the back, sit in the front. Try it again. Park in the back, sit in the front. Now I tried this one with first service because first service we're going to have like a bunch of green chairs in the back. And I was like, everybody repeat after me. And you, don't have, you don't have to repeat this one, just to be clear. This was for them, not for you. But for them, I was like, repeat after me. Green is for guests. And they all go, green is for guests. I was like, do it again. Green is for guests. And they're like, green is for guests. Okay. And then everybody just looked down at what you're sitting on. <laughs> yeah, and so all the pew coverings are green. So one guy comes up to me after church. He's like, I got a bone to pick with you. Anytime I hear that, I'm like, oh, no. What heresy did I accidentally like drop into my sermon today? He goes, everything we sit on is green. So I guess we're not supposed to come to Easter, right? But if you would, you know, just think about that in the next couple weeks. Because every little step that we take, every little intentional thing that we think about might just make it easier for a family that pulls into church. They're not used to going to church. Maybe they're running late and they don't see a parking spot. As opposed to if they come and they see the spot, they see a seat, maybe that makes them feel just a little bit more welcome and they can stay with us. Uh, so today is week two of three weeks. We're preparing more than parking spots and seats for the Easter season. We're also talking about repentance, the season of changing our minds. So that those of us who are here in the church, those of us who worship together throughout the year, we're purposefully thinking about what God might be asking us to do at this time of year. What is he wanting uh, us to do and change inside of our hearts? And I don't know how this may be working for you guys, Last week we talked about repentance as being this. Repentance is a change of mind or heart that leads to a change of action. So you remember John the Baptist saying, bear fruit uh, that matches your repentance. So whatever God's changing in your mind and your soul about him, let's let that work its way out into our life. From the root, if you would, where we're rooted in God's word, all the way out to the fruit where it turns into real life change. And I don't know how this works for you. Maybe uh, this works for you when you're in prayer, because prayer is a great place to encounter uh, what God might be putting inside of your hearts. Okay? And if God is making your heart burn for something, 
Like if you're feeling this moment where God's, oh, he's putting something on your heart. So prayer might work for you like this, where you're praying at the end of the day and you ask God some questions instead of just telling him everything you want. And so you ask God some questions like this, like, Lord, would you show me, bring to my mind and show me where I missed something today? God, would you, would you help me to remember if there was anything that you had called me to do today that I forgot? God, was there anywhere today where I got sidetracked, where I just got off the course, where I got sidetracked? And maybe in the moments when you ask God questions like that, maybe this works for you, where God brings something to your mind. Uh, suddenly you remember something. You remember a moment of opportunity. You remember the preacher said, put a yard sign out front. Oh, man, it's still sitting in the garage. And you're like, I repent, Lord, right? And you go and you put it out in the yard. I don't know what it might be, but God may... Use the moment of prayer to put something on your heart. Now, for some of you, that may not be the way it works. Maybe it works in Scripture, where you're doing your Bible reading, and while you're reading through Scripture, you see a word or a phrase or something where God speaks to you through these words. So maybe, instead of just rushing through your Bible reading during the season of repentance, maybe instead of just getting it done, you're reading this section or this passage over again a few times, and you're allowing it time to sink into your heart where you're reading this little verse and you kind of read it and you read it a second time. And then maybe you switch over to a version of the Bible that you don't usually use. And so you're used to the NIV or whatever. And so you pick up the message and you read that and you just go all the way and you read like the King James Version and you're completely holy for your Bible reading. And, and then what you've done is you put it in front of yourself two, three, four times in different versions and suddenly there's a word or there's an idea that just that passage has never gripped you this way before, and now it does. And maybe that's how God shows you something, where he's asking you bear some fruit. Maybe it's through scripture. Maybe it's through prayer. Another way that this might happen is if you know, you know, I get like all ADHD when it's time to sit down and pray, and I just have trouble focusing on a passage of scripture. I don't, I'm not Bible literate enough yet to know even all what I'm reading. So these aren't working for me. So maybe for you, it's like this. Maybe for you, it's a relationship with a mature Christian person. And this may be the case whether you are very new in Christ or very mature yourself. But maybe it's a relationship with a mature Christian person where you sit down with each other and you begin to talk. And you, you, know, you get deeper, though, than just talking about how your bracket is doing for March Madness. Because the honest truth is it's probably busted already, right? So you repent of that, and you're just like, Lord, now we're going to go to deep conversation. And you, so you move from that into somewhere where you talk about how your spiritual life is going. And this is a moment now between Christians where they may say something. They may put something on your heart. This Christian friend might remind you of something by the Spirit's power that you wouldn't have thought of that God wants you to be thinking about. And so in any of these ways, whether it's through your prayer, whether it's through scripture, whether it's through conversations with other Christians, what can happen in these moments is that like that Christians, iron sharpen iron, right? So one man sharpens another. There's some friction that happens when we begin to get into this prayer where we ask God questions instead of tell them. And when we read the scripture searching instead of accomplishing. And when we speak to people and let them sharpen us, there's this friction and friction creates heat. And suddenly what we find sometimes is that God has caused something inside of me to begin to burn. Where I can't let go of this thing. It's getting hot inside of me. And sometimes this even manifests physically. 
where we are convicted by the spirit of something and we actually physically have to get up and move and walk around. Have you ever had this happen at night, in the middle of the night? You wake up and it's like the spirit of God convicted you of something. And you have to get out of bed and you got to go wash your face. you got to walk around a little bit because sometimes this internal burning even manifests physically. And so where we left off last week with John the Baptist and he's preaching to the people, he's right here in Luke chapter 3 and he's been telling them about the fruit that God may be calling them to live in their life. So God's using him to create some burn in their hearts and look at what happens right after where we pick up from last week with John and the people because the people are feeling convicted. God has done something. God has caused them to think, ooh, there's something here for me. And so the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And I'm going to ask you to open up in your Bibles or your app, whatever, because this isn't going to be on the screen, to the book of Malachi in chapter 3. And while you get to Malachi chapter 3, why were the people thinking that John might be the Messiah? which means the anointed one of God, which would be the Savior. They're waiting for the Savior. Why would the people think it was John? Well, simply because the prophets had said that there would be someone coming who would prepare the way, and then that the Lord would actually come to his city, to his house, to the temple. And they knew this from the prophets, from their Bible. They were reading it, and they knew it. And some of those prophecies come from the book of Malachi. But look at how John answers them. And then after we read this, I'll read to you from Malachi chapter 3. John answered them about whether he's the Savior... I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. And if you're taking notes today on your bulletins, I want you to write this word powerful right there in the first blank of the bulletin notes in the back. Write the word powerful. And in fact, if you would, uh, look at the sentence with me for a moment and look at how reading the scripture a few times, repeating it a few times, might start to convict you. Uh, one who is more powerful than I will come. Just say it with me once or twice, ready? One who is more powerful than I will come. Now let's just shorten it to one who is more powerful than I. One who is more powerful than I. Say that one more time. One who is more powerful than I. And so you've got the word powerful written in your bulletin, and I want you to circle it or bracket it off or whatever, but look at that phrase. One who is more powerful than I. Because even though John is saying... I'm not the Savior. The Savior's still coming. He's more powerful than John. When you read this scripture, the Spirit might be counseling you and speaking to your heart, reminding you, if Jesus is more powerful than John the Baptist, he's more powerful than you. So this phrase is for you too, that the one who's coming is more powerful than you are. And this is going to be very, very important in what we're talking about today. Okay, so John says, one who's more powerful than I will come. And the straps of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie basically is a way of saying uh, in his household of all the jobs of being a servant that you could do, if Jesus had servants, I wouldn't even be worthy of being his footman. That's what John is essentially saying. He's going to be so much greater than me that he's going to be the head over the house and I'm not even worthy to be a servant in the house. And then he says this, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And people for generations of, of Christian living, for thousands of years in Christianity, have struggled over what these verses mean. So much so that many churches don't even preach them or read them. 
And then other churches may make this the cornerstone, the only thing that they preach or read. And some people will say that baptism in the Holy Spirit means that you're not saved unless you begin to like speak in tongues like angels or something. And then other people won't even bring this up in the church. And so I'd like to try to clear the fog a little bit today and ask us to kind of strip this back and look at what John is doing in the context. Okay? John in the context is saying, I'm baptizing you with water. Okay? For repentance. The change that he's going to bring about in your life is so much greater than what I can bring about in your life. It's like being baptized in fire as opposed to being baptized in water. This is John's way of saying, you have trouble understanding how much more powerful than I this Messiah really will be. The water, that's easy stuff. The fire, it's going to make you burn. He's going to call you to something. And in the book of Malachi chapter 3, I want to read to you verses 2 and 4. So this is Malachi 3 verses 2 and 4. The prophet Malachi asked this question, Who can endure the day of the Lord's coming? Who could endure the day when Jesus shows up? Who could endure it? This is the reason he asked the question. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And so the prophet Malachi has said that Jesus' coming would be like people who smelt gold and silver and they heat it up to the extent that all of the impurities in it begin to burn away and catch fire. All the dross, as they call it, is going to be burned out. And Malachi says when Jesus gets a hold of you, this is what's going to happen inside of your heart. is that He is going to uh, eliminate stuff from your heart by burning inside. Okay? And this is the promise of Jesus coming. John says, I can't do that for you. I can baptize you in water, but only an encounter with Jesus can burn the dross out of your heart. I want to skip a verse for a minute and look at verse 18. John is going to continue after talking about all this fire and all this burning to say to the people with many other words. Many other words he preaches to them. With many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. And I want you to think about with me this morning, how can this be good news? How can it be good news that Jesus is going to light a fire inside of your heart? Like the song that we sang just a few minutes ago. Light the fire in my soul. How can this be good news? Because John is saying some very hard things to the people. Some things that probably sound judgmental to the people. And even Jesus himself will say it this way. After John gets put into prison and his preaching ministry is over, Jesus goes into Galilee and he proclaims the good news of God. And he says the same kind of things. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And I want to ask you to think about how can this be good news? John, talking about the burning, has what sounds like some very bad news. Because it's not just a fire that will light inside of our hearts. If we aren't careful, John says, just like Malachi and the other prophets do, that the fire can, can continue to where it consumes all of us. If we don't heed what Jesus is trying to do. 
He uses another agricultural picture. And John says his winnowing fork is in his hand. That's the big farm tool that they would use to you know, throw stuff like this into the air, to throw grain into the air, to throw it up high where the wind could catch it, and the seeds that were heavy would fall and the rest would begin to blow away. And then the chaff would either blow away or it would pile up somewhere and you would light it and burn it so that none of this residue had to be in your field anymore or so that the stubble was gone so that you could plant fresh again. And John says the fire is going to burn inside of you or it's going to burn in all of you. And you see, this is the thing that Jesus is trying to prevent. The very serious warning that he's working with as he calls us back to himself. That just like the prophets had warned, that God must purify us. And I want to put a picture in your minds today of something that you and I both know that can really burn. Hot sauce. Let's talk about the gospel of hot sauce for a few minutes this morning. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I had the chance to go to this monastery in Arkansas, where for about three days I got to hang out with a bunch of Catholic monks. It was wild, y'all. I was also there with some other Protestant Christians, and we were spending time praying together and, and enjoying periods of silence and seeking God in prayer and doing some of the things that we're talking about right now. But these monks are such cool dudes. Uh, they have all kind. Of, I thought that they would be like vow of silence kind of guys, you know? And I thought that they wouldn't joke or have any fun. But they do. They have lots of fun. And they have all kinds of incredible talents. They do woodworking and farming. They grow Angus beef. And they grow hot peppers and make monk sauce. And so I heard one of the monks as I was walking out of a prayer time. And we were heading, I think it was to dinner. And he's carrying a box of these jars of hot sauce. And he's talking to one of his monk friends that's walking with him. And they were joking around. So I guess you could say they were monkeying around. And in the box are all these hot sauces they're taking to the store to sell. And he says to his buddy, there's hell in these bottles. <laughs> because these bottles are made out of habanero peppers. And I don't know if you've ever eaten anything like this. Maybe for you the hottest thing that you're willing to try is some ketchup. But this monk sauce is some serious stuff. The things that you're used to eating, like Tabasco hot sauce, has about 5,000 Scoville units of heat. The Scoville unit is what they use to measure the hotness of a pepper. And so uh, the ketchup that you're used to eating, how many Scoville units would that have? Yeah, zero, right? Because they don't put peppers in it. And so this Tabasco sauce over here on the left, about 5,000 units, Scoville units, okay? The monk sauce, 250,000 Scoville units of heat. That's about 50 times as hot as Tabasco sauce. We would put a drop of this in our meal at the monastery and stir it into the whole bunch of rice and it warmed the place up. Now these peppers right here, you may have seen before, but hopefully not. These are called Carolina Reaper peppers. And Carolina Reaper peppers currently hold the Guinness Book of World Records for being the hottest pepper on average in the world. Some other people have claimed that they've created some new kinds of peppers since then by crossbreeding peppers that are hotter, but this one still holds the world record. And when they've tested the Carolina Reaper pepper, it has come out to an average Scoville unit. Not 5,000, not 250,000, but 1.569 million Scoville units. 
And the hottest pepper, not the average, but the hottest individual pepper they've tested, 2.2 million Scoville units. The average of these peppers is about 300 times more than the Tabasco sauce that you're used to eating at home. And in first service, I made this joke. I was like, I only know one guy. Like one guy who I think would ever probably be willing to try a, you know, one of these Reaper peppers. It's Donovan Fox. He'd be crazy enough to do that. And he interrupts my servant right then and he goes, I have. <laughs> and I was like, it proves the resurrection is real. You know, he's back. I mean, wow. Because I'm telling you, this stuff is hot. That's the kind of stuff you touch one of those on Monday, you might burn yourself by touching your face on Friday. And we want to use this picture right now to think about a couple of extremes about how we look at repentance. Because when Jesus talks about it burning inside of us, we have a tendency to do two things. We have a tendency to go to one extreme or the other that misunderstands what Jesus is trying to do. And one of them is that we water the thing down so much that it becomes so weak that it's really not even palatable. That it doesn't add any heat to the food at all. And the other one is that we crank it up and we go all Carolina Reaper pepper on ourselves or on others and burn them out of existence with our preaching about repentance. So let's talk first of all about this extreme. About when we get the sauce way too weak. There's a thing that it seems like we do today in American Christianity. Which is using this phrase that I accept Jesus. And maybe you've heard, maybe you have said this. I've probably said this many times. And until I was studying to prepare this lesson, I didn't really get convicted about this. But we use this phrase that we accept Jesus. And here's a wild thing, church. Nowhere in the scriptures does Jesus ever say, I want you to accept me. Nowhere in the gospels do the writers ever say, accept Jesus. Nowhere in Paul's letters does he ever praise people for accepting Jesus. It simply isn't the language of Scripture. One of the preachers from our fellowship, Rick Ashley, has said this about accepting Jesus. He says, if there is nothing about your discipleship that is radical to an unbeliever, let those words sink in. If people who don't love the Lord meet you and your discipleship of following Jesus isn't a little bit shocking, if it isn't a little bit surprising, then you've accepted him, but not begun to follow him. Jesus never says, accept me. What does he say? He says, follow me. And he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus, when he gets into your life, is going to bring some burn. He's going to bring a little bit of heat. That doesn't mean that he's a condemning God. It means he's a purifying God. And he's not going to let us walk around eating applesauce pretending that it's the full heat of the purification of the gospel that he wants to give to us and share with us. No. You see, the problem with this kind of weak sauce is that it does not allow Jesus to work. If I accept Jesus, but I don't accept anything that Jesus tells me to do, or I don't accept anything about he, who he is that's different than who I am, or if I don't accept where he's leading me to go, I don't allow him to work. I've watered it down. I haven't actually renounced anything in my life. All I've done is added Jesus to all of the other things that I already do and accept. Richard Beck, a professor at ACU, said this. We talk much of acceptance, but little of renunciation. We talk much of accepting Jesus, but very little about what we've renounced through God's power in our life that he's helping burn out of our hearts 
so that we love that less and love God more. Look at the way Jesus put it in Luke 12. Jesus told a story, a parable, about lighting lamps to people who lived before there was electricity. And he said to them, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps burning so that you can see. And all throughout scripture, a lamp that is burning is a picture of the spirit of God. In the Old Testament, the prophets saw visions of olive oil and things coming out of these trees and the pipes leading down to this lampstand where there was these flames being lit by this pure oil. And in the book of Revelation, there are images again of the lamps that are lit and the warning that John, the revelator, wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor was that Jesus is pleading with you, don't let this lamp go out. In fact, don't force him to remove the lamp, which is the spirit, because you need its light and you need its heat and you need that burn. You want the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. But there's another extreme. There's another extreme in which we, like the Carolina Reaper Peppers, try to fix ourselves. And we talked about this a little bit last week. It's when we get all that stress and all that guilt and all that shame and we look at ourselves and we just try harder. We try to perform better. And here's another thing that the Bible doesn't say. The Bible never says, repent of your sins. Is this crazy to you? That's not a rhetorical question. Is this crazy to you? The Bible never says repent of your sins. And I'm challenging you guys. You look in any version you want, except for the New Living Translation, because it does say repent of your sins. It doesn't in the Greek. They just did this gloss thing where they wrote repent of your sins. But you look in any other one you want, because I've already found that one. And you try to find somewhere where it says repent of your sins. You know, if you find one that I didn't find, I'll give you a free yard sign. But I don't think you will. Because I've searched through some powerful Bible software looking for it and just shocked that the Bible doesn't say repent of your sins. Sometimes it talks about leaving our sins behind and turning away from them. But the scriptures are far less concerned with repenting of our sins. And instead they're concerned with what we turn to when we're repenting. Look at this verse from 1 Thessalonians where Paul is writing to the Christians there. He says, the people that have come back to me tell... How you turned to God. I want you to all see the words. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Look at Acts 20 verses 20 and 21. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. But have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. This is so wild, but when the scriptures talk about repentance, the scriptures fixate themselves on who we're turning to, not what we're turning from. Because church We've missed this many times. It's been a mistake that the churches have made. We have assumed that when people turn from their sins, that they turn to God. And that's just simply not always the case. People can turn from sins and turn to other sins. 
People can turn from sins and turn to their own work, their own effort. People can turn from sins and think that they've turned from nothing to all. I'm just this atheist now. I don't even believe in morality. People can turn from sins and turn to almost anything around the compass. But the key isn't what you turn from. The key is who you turn to. How would you feel if in the marriage vows that you had given whenever you and, and, and your spouse got married, uh, if you left out that little part that said forsaking all others, right? You wouldn't feel good about that. You want your spouse to forsake all others. So we get it. But is that the highlight of the wedding? And don't do this. And here's some other things you're promising. You know, if I ever catch you doing this, no, that's like the prenup, right? That's not the wedding ceremony. The wedding ceremony focuses on who you're turning to. Because you look each other in the eyes and you promise, I don't even know all the things that are going to come. But I'm keeping my eyes on you. This is what God's asking of us. Would you look at Christ? Would you allow Jesus to work? Because just like the weak sauce, where we refuse to let him work because we douse the thing, we don't let him burn it all in our hearts. When we burn so hot and hard that we live critical and judgmental lives and we burn other people to ash with our preaching or we do it to ourselves, we do not allow Jesus to work. On the one hand, he can't work because we don't allow him in. On the other hand, he can't work because we try to do it all ourselves. And this for Jesus simply will not work. 2 Corinthians 3 says this about the Jews from the Old Testament who saw Moses when he came down from the presence of God. And Moses' face glowed. When he spent time with God, his face glowed. It's a wild thing. I've never heard of anybody else in history whose face glowed from their prayer time. But Moses' did. And it was so bright that people couldn't bear to look at him, so he had to put a veil over his face so that the people's eyes wouldn't be burned by looking at the glory of having spent time with God. And so today, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the new era... That this veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But look at it, church. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And we want you to understand this. That the power of of the good news that John preached. Oh yes, there's some burning in it. God will convict you of stuff. He will set your life on fire. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, when asked, why did people come and hear him preach? And how did he do it? And he filled this tabernacle in London with 10,000s of people in the days when very few people in London were going to church 150 years ago. He said, the Holy Spirit lights me on fire and people come to watch me burn. What if your life looked? And we want you to understand the power of the good news is not that you accept Jesus. It's that he accepted you. The power of the good news is not that you suffer for your sins and pour the reaper sauce on yourself. No, the power of the good news is not that you suffer for your sins, but that he did. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. You see, when Jesus walked and talked with a couple of disciples right after the resurrection. Two weeks from now, we celebrate Easter, and we're going to be talking about the resurrection. And right after that event, there's two guys that are walking away from Jerusalem, just despondent. I mean, they're just, their hearts are deflated. They feel like their faith was a light inside, and then it winked out in a moment. 
And Jesus is walking with these guys, and he preaches to them from the Old Testament scriptures about who he was, but they didn't recognize him. And then they finally sit down together to eat some food, and just as he breaks some bread open, they notice who he is, and they realize who it is, and then he disappears. And then they turn to each other, and they ask this question. We're not our hearts burning within us. And the word that the prophet John had used at the very beginning of the book of Luke, when he said that he will burn in you, that word is only used three times in the whole book of Luke. It's like placeholders in the book. It happens at the beginning, it comes up once in the middle, and it comes up once at the end. John says Jesus will burn inside of you. And then the lamps burn when we prepare our lamps, our lights. And then here at the end, they ask themselves, we're not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us. And here's the catch, you guys. He preached to them from the scriptures and their hearts were burning, but they were not yet seeing him. All of the preaching in the world is only the burning. It isn't the end result. It's just the light that points to Jesus. And the moment that he broke the bread and they saw him, they encountered him. For a moment, that split second of seeing Jesus was enough that repentance took hold. That split second was like the, mo the moment when Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament was allowed to see the glory of the Lord. And he was so afraid because he had seen God's glory. He said, whoa, is me a sinful man and with sinful lips? Even my words are like dirty rags compared to what I just saw. He saw the angels out there in eternity somewhere crying, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah wants to fall on his knees. But in that moment when he saw the glory of God, when he encountered him, God touches his lips and purifies him. And in this moment, these men see Christ. And this church is what we're called to in repentance. We're not called to where we were. We're called to where he is. We're called to encounter him in worship. We're called to encounter him in the breaking of the bread. We're called to encounter him in prayer, in scripture, and discipleship. And we'll talk a little bit briefly about those next week. But today, if the Spirit is burning in you, would you make a decision not to leave without doing something about it? Don't allow the things that God puts on your heart in the morning to become cold coals by the evening. While the Spirit is a light, take hold of it. Move on it. Answer Him. Even if you don't know how, look at him. He will light the way. Let's stand together and sing a song of invitation. Our elders will be at the back here and here if you'd like to pray this morning. Let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Let the blind say I can see. It's what the Yeah.
Father, thank you for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for the blessing of being here today. Thank you for speaking through Josh to us today from your word, through your spirit. Thank you, Father, for the fellowship that we have together in Christ. My prayer today is, Father, as we turn to you, run to us as you did the prodigal son. Embrace us, teach us, help us, save us eternally. Let your spirit work through us to your glory forever. It's in Jesus that I pray. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank <laughs> you.